Hi and welcome to episode nine of the Distinctive Leaders podcast with me, your host, Andrew Wallace. Today's guest is Temi Afong, a true leader in international finance and investment. Temi's globetrotting career has seen him take on senior positions in the UK and Africa with big hitting organisations such as Credit Suisse Financial Products, Barclays, ABSA and now HSBC. During this time, Temi has successfully embraced change and led multiple teams to deliver impactful transformations in the financial services sector. In this episode, we discuss how a positive mindset has enabled him to take on many difficult personal and professional challenges and thrive. And importantly, we touch on the challenges of being a black gay man in an industry not renowned for its diversity. If you want to learn how to adapt to change and build successful teams, Temi has insights you'll be keen to hear. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation. Temi Afong, thank you so much for being part of uh, Distinctive Leaders. Welcome and really appreciate you uh, being here. Thank you. Good to be here. And Temi, let's start at the beginning. Could you just tell me a little bit about your upbringing, your childhood years, what shaped you in those formative years and particularly what influenced you in terms of the career and the leader you are today? Sure. You know, in terms of background, I'm sort of half Nigerian, half English, born my mum's English, my father's Nigerian. I was born in the UK, but lived in Nigeria pretty much from age four till I came to the UK for schooling around 11 or 12. can't remember. But, um, you know, so it was a fairly, I think, international upbringing in that regard. And you had this kind of the English influence of my, my mum's dad in particular was a very is a Yorkshireman and very English. And of course, you know, uh, my, my dad's side. Look, my parents were sort of divorced. So I was pretty much brought up, you know, full time by and by mum. But, you know, my dad was around or present. But I think, you know, if I look at kind of the career and so on, or the beginnings of it, you know, in, in countries like Nigeria, you're encouraged very early on by your parents, mostly your dad, You've got to do well at school. You've got to get a good, go to a good university, become a lawyer, a dentist, an accountant, a doctor. You know, one of those kind of classic things, right? Because that's kind of what they knew. And I was fine actually with that. You know, I always just made sure I got through school, tried to have fun while getting through school, but I never lost sight of the fact that you had to do well. And, you know, that kind of push to make sure you did as well as you could has always been something that has driven me. In some regards, sometimes it might feel like, you know, you, you're never doing good enough, if you like. So, you know, there were instances where, you know, it was like, oh, look, I got a 80% or a 90%. And it's like, why didn't you get a hundred? You know, so it was quite a strict kind of upbringing in that regard. But, you know, it was always something that I felt gave some framework and a push for to excel, I suppose. And it led to you going on to further education and studying law. Just give us a little bit of an idea as to sort of how you transitioned to sort of higher education and... Uh... Yeah, so, you know, I was in a boarding school, Repton in, in Derbyshire, and having a good time again in sort of high school equivalent. Then it came to time to decide what to do as a career. I was always really interested in sort of politics and economics. But I didn't quite fancy studying either of those full time. But I was also quite interested in business and so on. Eventually, I just said, look, let's do law. I had a couple of uncles who were lawyers. They were all commercial type lawyers. So there was a bit of sort of business there. And, you know, I felt it was a good 
kind of degree to do. I mean, it doesn't sound very scientific. It's not like I, I, I don't think I ever thought I would be a lawyer, to be frank. And as it happened, you know, a month or two into the degree, I realized that, hmm, I definitely wouldn't want to practice law as a career. Um, led to a bit of an interesting exchange with my dad where I phoned him and I said, I'm not sure I want to do law. And he was like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. And the phone went down, you know. <laughs> so I sort of called back maybe a couple of days later and I said, fine, I'll do the degree, but I won't practice law. And he was like, fine, you've still got three years to go. So we can talk. We'll, we'll cross that bridge. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. But what I did try and do when I did law was I tried to pick courses and topics that were of interest to me. So, you know, I did commercial law, I did company law, I even did Japanese law, you know, I did international law. So I picked topics that I felt were more fun and interesting for me than say criminal law. I mean, you did have to study it as a kind of uh, a module, but you could have picked other associated modules with something like criminal law, but I didn't really enjoy that. So I stayed on the more commercial side of the law topics, if I can put it that way. And frankly, it's really stood me in good stead all these years because it taught me a logical way to think through commercial problems and, you know, be able to get to the point of what's important in topic A or topic B. And also to construct kind of how you respond to it. Yeah. And that's a great message, I think, to a lot of people who are in it, still education now, that their degrees don't necessarily define that they have to follow. But there's an awful lot that you learn from the various disciplines that you can take into a whole wide variety of careers. No, and it's, it really is a great degree to do. You know, so my not wanting to do law had nothing to do with the degree as such. It just was more about a career in law. But I actually did enjoy studying law. And I learned, like I said, I learned a huge amount from it. It stood me in good stead even till today. And then you followed a career in finance. And uh, your, one of, well, your first role was with? So I started off, well, I did graduate training at a company called Hill Samuel yeah. for two years, uh, but that was just rotating around the bank, mostly in commercial banking. And then my first kind of real job, if I can call it that, was at Credit Suisse Financial Products in Risk. CSFP, as it was known, was the sort of derivative sales and trading arm of the Credit Suisse Group in sort of the early 90s. Yeah, and in its day, it was the absolute top of its game. It was the uh, the go-to organization. No, it, it really was. I mean, I remember going to see them for an interview. And, you know, Hill Samuel was a very old British bank, you know, and all, all of that look and feel. And then you arrived in Canary Wharf. They were one of the first tenants in Canary Wharf. And it literally was like you'd gone from one generation to another generation in the space of 30 minutes. You know, it was just a different pace. The people just were different. The topics were so much bigger, so much more sophisticated, at least to me. And I was like, I've got to work here. And yeah, I got it. That was exciting, exciting times. I remember actually the only other firm that was out in Canary Wharf at the time, I think was Morgan Stanley. Correct. It was just the two. And, and I think Bear Stearns was in the tower. Maybe Bear Stearns, yeah. But it was, it was like a ghost town compared to what it is today. So um, yeah, interesting times. And at one point, your whole team was headhunted uh, yeah, and, so. and, and most of them moved on. But I was just really interested because you stayed and, and just take us back to that time where what was that decision making, that thought process? So... You know, I was in risk there. I was, at the time of this incident, I was deputy uh, head of credit for Europe, Africa, Middle East. But I think, you know, my, my personality and maybe 
kind of the way I responded to to issues at the bank had brought me to the attention of you know a lot of people on the trading floor who I worked with, and they often said, you know, you should be down here. You're, you're sort of that sort of guy, whatever that meant. And you know, it was a very interesting domain, right, to go from kind of slightly policeman-y role to actually the doing. So it was something that was of interest and we had broached once or twice, but, you know, nothing quite had happened. But anyway, so, you know, we were headhunted. It was a very interesting episode in the way it happened. But, you know, we ended up with offers from this other bank and basically it was essentially the leadership of the entire credit function had been headhunted, which if you're the head of CSFP, you can imagine that's not a good thing. But I wasn't that necessarily that convinced about the move, but I was prepared to kind of go along and see how the situation played out. And CSFP put up a, a good fight and, you know, the CEO asked me what I really wanted to do. And I said, actually, you know, Chris, I would really like to work on the trading floor in a sales capacity. And he said, fine, you know, you can... You, you have to help me rebuild the credit function, but in 12 months time, you can move. So for me, getting into the front office was what I really wanted to do ultimately. And, you know, um, there was an opportunity to do that. So And true to his word after 12 months? Literally to the day. So of the, I don't know, it must have been six or seven people that were headhunted, three of us stayed behind and did different things. And I, I wonder if actually it's quite topical, you know, today, because everyone's talking about the great resignation. A lot of people are moving. What advice would you give other people in terms of if they were in a similar situation with all of this going around? How would you replay it? You know, if you were back in that situation, what would you do differently? And, and what advice would you give out? There are some people that will say, well, you know, you'd resigned and then you didn't go ethically, is that the right thing to do? And, you know, we can all make a call whether we think it's the right thing to do. For me, I think you have to be clear about what you really want to do. And if opportunities present themselves, you know, you should consider them. And there are many concerns as you do that consideration that you should take into account. But at the end of the day, and probably now more than ever, I think you've got to do something that you really want to do and you think you're going to have fun doing. And I think what the great resignation is highlighting for a lot of people is perhaps what we think or thought was important is not as important anymore. And I think COVID has really opened many people's eyes into what is or isn't important, but that's a very personal choice. And, you know, one has to live with the consequences of the decisions you made. I mean, for me, that move, the consequence of that was that the people I used to work with, we barely ever spoke again. You know, it was quite a, so that was sad as yeah. an outcome, but I think you must make the choices that you need to make. At that time. But at, yeah. at, with the facts and situation you're faced with. And at the time you started your career, banking was not known for its diversity. And many would say that it still, it still isn't. But as a man of colour, who was openly gay, what challenges did you face early on in your career and how did you overcome them? That's a tough question in a way because, yes, as a black person in London, forget a career, you know that 
discrimination exists. I think everyone chooses to react to that discrimination in whichever way that they choose to. Personally, I cannot say that I ever felt discriminated against professionally, right? I felt that I was always given fair opportunities. I don't ever remember feeling I was treated differently. And even going back to school where, you know, there were not many black kids at my boarding school. Once again, but I don't know whether that was just because I chose to not let it or I was lucky. You know, probably more the latter than the former. I think that the topic of diversity, it's got quite an interesting kind of dimension to it because some of it is you, the individual, and how you present yourself, position yourself, how you react to situations. And a lot of it is the environment that you are in and the people that you are engaged with. And I know for many people, it's extremely challenging. You know, maybe to fast forward a bit on the topic, if I may, you know, when Black Lives Matter happened, it actually forced me to confront a lot of my own thoughts about the topic of discrimination. And I actually had some very courageous conversation with some friends. And some friends said to me, well, we don't see you as Black, Temi. And actually, that got me super angry because what I felt they were saying to me is, you've actually had to make yourself less black to be friends with me. Do, do, do you see what I mean, yeah. right? And it got me thinking back in time, maybe I was doing that unconsciously. So when I say I don't remember of having, I'm questioning that a little bit. That's why I said it's quite a difficult question because with hindsight, maybe things happened that I did not recognize them for what they were or chose not to. Difficult to know, you know, over the passage of time. So, And when you make the comparison with back then, how, how have attitudes changed in your, in your opinion? Hugely. You know, I remember when I worked in London, I didn't hide sort of my sexuality, but I was less open about it, right? When I moved to South Africa, which we may talk about, you know, I made a decision then that I would be sort of out and proud. And, you know, that gave me a huge amount of empowerment as a person. You know, I really felt I could really be me. So pre then, I clearly wasn't fully me, if I can use that expression. But I figured I'd have to live with that constraint, if you want to call it that. And I think now in London, in finance, it's not really a, you know, it's much more accepted. Things are less rigid, but it doesn't mean that everyone has the same experience. So for every one person that you meet who's says, ah, oh, it's not a problem in my workplace, everyone's fine. There's another 10 people for whom it is a problem. So it's still an issue. There's greater awareness. I think companies are trying to do a lot to kind of um, remove the kind of unconscious bias that does exist, but humans are humans and it exists. I think what companies are better at doing these days is that it should be easier for people to speak up, challenge. A number of very senior executives in finance and in other industries are openly allies of on the diversity agenda, be it sexual or ethnicity or religious. So I think, you know, there's a good momentum, but certainly much more to be done. Is there any one thing or two things that you really feel strongly about in terms of uh, the, the city or the, the industry could do? I think it, hold, it could hold itself more accountable and 
make it less of a numbers game. So sometimes you might feel that decisions are made to meet kind of a quota of some kind, but is it really genuine transformation or, or diversity people are seeking? I think the jury is still out on that one. Yeah. No, well, I, look, I, 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 I think that from, from my perspective, there is, as you say, an awful lot of awareness today that, that, that wasn't there before. And I think you touched on a really important point about the fact that it's so much more easy to call out the wrong behaviours today. And, and I think that, that the majority, it was acceptable before because it wasn't called out the majority get called out now and i think that you know that will help but there is there is clearly much more to do you, you've touched on this before so there was a point in your life where you decided to move to south africa tell us a little bit about kind of that career decision because it, it, it to most people listening that would be a fairly major move for anybody yeah. in terms of moving country even though you have african origins just tell us about the decision-making, what one... No, my job at Credit Suisse um, Financial Products had me traveling into Africa a lot. So, you know, I was covering kind of English-speaking African countries. So I was spending a huge amount of my time in Lagos or Joburg or Cape Town or Nairobi, Accra, etc. And over a few years of doing that, I really felt I wanted to live in Africa. It was as simple as that. And overlaid with that was, it was also the time of kind of the emergence of South Africa back into the global kind of family, right? So, you know, there was a huge amount of optimism about the country. The people were openly embracing kind of being part of the global world again. And I just loved the vibe of the country. And I, I said, you know, maybe I have something to contribute to this movement. And then the opportunity came with some people actually that worked at Credit Suisse, as it happened, one of whom was South African, to go and do something entrepreneurial in Johannesburg, in finance, to help set up a small bank. And I sort of felt, you know, if you're going to do something like this, tell me now's the time. I loved going to South Africa. It was like, it was, never felt like a business trip, you know, it was just such a great place to visit. So, and I had already made some friends there over my many years of traveling. So it was a big decision. And many of my friends here were shocked. I think they all thought I would be moving to maybe either another big financial center, you know, as opposed to South Africa. But I wanted to do it. And, you know, it was a very transformative part of my life from when I moved there, you know, in professionally and, and personally. So, you know, with hindsight, I would do it again. It was a brave thing to do, I think. But I've always been someone who believes in kind of roll the dice every so often not completely recklessly do your due diligence, but sometimes you've got to take a risk. And I was young enough at the time that I felt, look, if it didn't work out, I'd come back to London and life would carry on. So what were some of the cultural adjustments that you had to make? <laughs> one of the, the biggest ones is the way people speak to one another. I think if you've grown up in England, it's less direct, more polite in inverted commas, you know, and you kind of have to read between the lines sometimes to really understand what someone might be saying. And I remember I was in a few meetings in Joburg and I'd come out of the meeting and my recollection of what happened and someone else's were not the same. So I, I realized that actually South Africans pride themselves on being very direct. And I had to change my engagement style which I loved, by the way, because being direct is very liberating. You can just say, I mean, you have to say it in a nice way, but you can put it on the table, have a frank conversation about it and move on. So that was a big cultural thing. 
The other thing that was really interesting, I think, was the kind of, the, and it's still an ongoing thing in South Africa, but the relationship between black South Africans and black Africans who live in South Africa. You know, there's always been a, a, a sort of a slightly weird dynamic and you've seen it in kind of some of the xenophobic xenophobic incidents that have happened in South Africa over the years where, you know, you sort of have black on black violence um, and so on and so forth. So that was very interesting and somewhat surprising for me to kind of wrap my head around. But I understand, you know, what causes it. But um, yeah, that was very interesting culturally for me. And just keen to sort of, there'll be a number of people that might be listening who are considering that type of major move in terms of to a different country. Is there anything that you, any advice you can give just in terms of preparing yourself mentally, preparing yourself physically for a move like that? And, 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 you know, in hindsight, when you take yourself back to that move for you, what advice would you give the younger Temi? I think you really have to do your due diligence deeply. The thing that I went to go and do there ultimately didn't work out after like three years. And there were some gaps in my due diligence, I'd say. So you've got to really think about that. Clearly, if you're moving to a country, it's a very different thing living there than it is visiting it. So as often as I had visited South Africa, I'd only ever done it for a couple of days here, a couple of days there, you know, so you need to be prepared that living in a place versus visiting in a place come with a very different experience. And there will be things about that place that frustrate you. But what you can't do, I think, is compare it to where you used to live. So, you know, when I first got there, you know, it takes a while to make friends. And yeah, there were periods where I was enjoying what I was doing career-wise, but I wasn't happy personally because I just didn't know people and I was getting established. And I used to come to London a lot. You know, just I was sort of hanging on to my old personal life in London whilst building a new career in South Africa. But eventually one day I said to myself, it's not sustainable. You can't keep going back and forth to London and you can't compare living in Johannesburg or living in London. They, they are both cities with different attractions. So you've got to focus on what's good about South Africa and Johannesburg as opposed to comparing it to what it doesn't have relative to London because it never will be London. No other city is any more than Paris is London or you know, New York is London. So you know, kind of being positively oriented to see what is versus what's not, I think is important to to bear in mind when you make such a move, because it's very easy to kind of fall back into your old habits, if you like. But the other thing is, once you've made the move, embrace the place. And, you know, that's what I tried to do eventually. And I felt I was embraced in return, you know, and you know, I had a great 22 years there, I still have some, so many really good friends, you know, so it's a big part of my life and I would do it again in a heartbeat. And if you don't mind talking about it, shockingly, you were the victim of a shooting in your own driveway. Just give us a little bit of an idea as to sort of how that impacted you both mentally and physically. The first thing is, and in a way, kind of COVID did the same to the world, but it was a hard stop, right? Nothing can prepare you for when the brakes get slammed on like that. So, you know, one minute, it's a Saturday afternoon, you've done what you've always done on a Saturday, go for lunch, maybe do a bit of shopping, drive home, get ready to go out to a dinner party. That's the normal Saturday night. 
Saturday and then, you know, halfway through that afternoon, <laughs> your world kind of collapses around you and nothing can prepare you for that hard stop. But um, what you can do, and I was lucky because, you know, I was, I survived it, is how are you going to react to it? And I remember being in the ER, lying there and people running around and doing whatever they were doing. And all I kept saying to myself is, tell me this won't change your life. Whatever this is, however it plays out, life will go on. I, at the time, I knew I wasn't going to die, so that was good news. <laughs> so I, I knew I wasn't facing that, but I knew I was facing, you know, a degree of life-changing kind of injury. But I was very kind of in the positive mindset the whole way. So, I mean, for, for the benefit of the listeners, you know, it was a shooting where the bullet went through my arm, came out of the other side of my arm and went through my thigh and shattered my femur. So sort of between my hip and my knee is, is a metal kind of pole and bolts and things like that. But, you know, within a month and a half, I was back in the gym. I remember saying to, the, to my doctor, how long do people normally take to recover from this? And he said, well, maybe 12, 18 months, maybe slightly longer. I said, I'll see you in six, you know. And I knew that if I didn't get my physical condition back, I wouldn't be able to deal, I think, with the mental piece of the story in a way. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's vanity or anything like that, but that's just how it worked in my head. I worked it out. So I was very focused on getting back to kind of full strength. But, you know, what it did make me decide, however, was not to live there anymore in due course. So, but, you know, when you live in a place like that, it, it happens sadly often and you have to, in a way, accept that it could happen to you one day and it, and it sadly happened to me. And it's probably easier said than done, but that positive mind frame was probably just the thing that really sort of kept you going because because I, I think that mental attitude, I've heard it with people who have had cancer, that mental attitude that you will defeat it or you will come out the other side and you won't let it sort of change you is, is probably, you know, singularly one of the one of the most important things. Yeah, I think it's been probably, I would say my most defining characteristic is uh, the glass has always ever been half full. And yeah, life throws at all of us huge issues from time to time. It's how you deal with it that's important. And I've always felt that, yeah, things may happen to you, tough things, difficult things, but how you respond to it, the mind and the body are an incredibly powerful combination and they work together. So, you know, you, you really need to keep both in condition. And the mental condition is positive mindset, not naively positive, positive, because nothing, we don't know what's going to happen to us the next minute, the next second, right? But what you can decide is whatever happens, you will deal with it positively. And I think that has always been a source of strength for me. And in many ways, some of the things I've chosen to do have been with that, you know, changing different career moves along the way, always of the view that you can do this, right? If you put your mind to it, you can do it. You have to take calculated guesses, get, uh, risks, but you can do it. And I, on that day, I felt exactly the same way. And, you know, I, I think 
that was a big part of how I recovered as quickly as I recovered. It's a great story and, and why you're a distinctive leader today. And, and as a podcast for and about distinctive leaders, I always like to ask our guests, what makes someone distinctive in their eyes? What would you say are the top three characteristics of a distinctive leader? Authenticity, a comfort with who you are as a person, because I think people can see it. And it sounds like you've been on that journey yeah. where you weren't that, that as authentic as you are today. Yes. And I always think it's about the people. You know, none of us get anything done alone. And there are so many great people in many, many organizations. And I think people want to feel appreciated. They want to feel part of the story. They want to feel included. They want to feel that they will be rewarded and recognized. But above all, I think people just want to be part of a winning team, you know. So I think as a leader, yeah, you can talk about strategy and all these things, but I always start with the people. And I take a lot of time to get to know people. And it's been really hard lately, particularly joining a new firm during COVID and you couldn't be in the room with people. So that has been very challenging, but you've got to do it anyway. And the thing I love about that is when you have that breakthrough with a person, it's amazing. It's like, it's like an elastic band that just snaps, you know, completely free. And you can see the other person and you, you just, there's an instantaneous shift in the relationship because it becomes one of really good trust and with trust you can achieve a lot because you know you want to be out there conquering the competition not sort of fighting yourself because you don't trust each other or whatever so for me those are the things that are distinguishing and as you're talking about distinctive leader is there one distinctive leader that you've worked with or come across in your career that that, that stands above others yeah, I, I've had the fortune to work with, with a couple, but all of them, I think the one thing about them was that they were very, very um, purpose-driven, but with values. So, you know, being a people person doesn't mean you don't hold people accountable. You know, it's about giving the space, but giving the accountability as well. And, um, you know, one of my bosses, uh, when I worked in South Africa, a guy called Stephen Van Collar, you know, you know, I really found him to be distinctive in that way because, you know, he was very hard to work for, but he was there in support of you, you know, and, you know, he was approachable, accessible, you know, always made time for you. And if you were doing things incorrectly, he also would tell you, and he was open and honest about that, but he'd tell it to you in the right way so that you took it away as a learning rather than necessarily a scolding, put it that way. That's fantastic. And lastly, at Leithwaite, our purpose is to create meaningful change through exceptional people. What one meaningful change would you like to see in your industry? Ooh, that's a big topic, but I think we've talked about it a bit. I would say as an industry, we need to double down on our efforts around diversity. I think it will bring so much value to this industry and many, you know, same applies to many industries. So that for me is, is the big meaningful change I'd like to see in my industry. Tremendous. Temi, thank you so much for being a guest on Distinctive Leaders. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Oh, great. Thanks so much. Great to be here. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Distinctive Leaders podcast and got as much out of listening to it as I did recording it. 
If you did, I'd be hugely grateful if you could take 30 seconds to give the show a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. If you have any suggestions for what could make this podcast more beneficial for you, be it topic ideas, guest recommendations, or anything else, please feel free to get in touch at andrew.wallace at leithwaite.com. Thank you so much for listening.